Our first reading is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 11, which is on page 152 in the Bibles we provide. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The word of our Lord. Our second reading is in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, which is on page 887 in the Bibles we provide. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Gospel of Christ. The last Sunday in October was uh, a unique Reformation Sunday because as we and other Protestant churches around the world noted, uh, it was the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. So we have set the task of looking uh, for a few Sundays at the five solas of the Reformation. Sola being the Latin word for alone, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, scripture alone, teaching that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Those are the Reformation solas. And uh, we come this morning to sola gratia, grace alone, and yet uh, in coming to this particular passage in our epistle reading from Ephesians, we really find the central three solas encompassed, and because it's from Scripture, it encompasses the fourth as well. And so... Uh, I don't think that there is a text in Scripture that more beautifully or concisely captures the themes of the Reformation 
and shows their relationship with one another. Chapter 1, if you recall uh, from your own studies of Ephesians, chapter 1 really is an extended prayer in which Paul is thanking God for the great salvation that he's worked. And the theme is in Christ over and again. Everything that he says is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And he ended by saying that we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. But now he steps back and in these opening 10 verses of chapter 2, encompasses powerfully the message of the gospel. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. If this were a play, it would be an act in, in three scenes, very distinct scenes. And I'd like you to think about that as we unpack these verses. Verses one through three is act one in which Paul depicts in, well, unsparingly, the reality of humanity, including all of us, by nature, apart from God's grace. And then in the middle dramatic passage, everything changes with the simple words, but God. Verses 4 and the first half of verse 5, Paul shows that we are not left in despair. And then he begins in verse 5 in the final act to show us in very distinct counterpoint to what he's told us in the first three verses, what God has done for us in Christ, how he has answered our need and saved us, redeemed us, and redeemed us for a life of meaning and significance, those words that Americans love, but that all people should love because we were made for it. God made us in his image after his likeness that we might not live futile and meaningless lives. And so Paul shows in the final verses how he gives us that in Christ. So just look with me for a few minutes at this uh, dramatic presentation of the gospel and why 
uh, it was so crucial when Paul wrote it and why it needed to be recovered in Luther's day and why we need to hear it in every age. It's easy if you know anything about Paul's context to understand why this message was so important. I tried on Reformation Sunday to lay the groundwork of the way that traditions had arisen by the first century among God's old covenant people. Traditions, some of which encouraged a deeper uh, understanding of the old covenant, but so much of which had begun to encumber the people, separate them from any kind of intimate relationship with God and joyful following of God, and had become this, that, well, I brought you one of the massive tomes from my library and said, I have 30 of these that are the written, what was then the oral law that Jesus and Paul contended against. And at the heart of it was the idea that even if you were God's covenant people, even if you were part of the community, in order to be right with God, you had to do all these things. And that is what you did in order to deal with sin and failure and to maintain your relationship with the living God. So it was in many ways, even if you were born into Israel and had been circumcised, nonetheless, you had to keep kosher, you had to do all of the things and that had been added in the oral tradition. This compendium. And Jesus in his ministry and Paul in his and the early church sought to strip that away and bring us back to the point of realizing that we cannot save ourselves. Paul says, your problem is not that you are ignorant and need to be informed. It is not that you are immoral and need to try harder to be moral people. It is not that you are somehow failing at certain places in your life and you need to get your act together and begin to act like the people of God so that God will love you and care for you. Paul says you are dead. You're dead spiritually. And a dead person can no more bring themselves alive spiritually than someone who's not been born can cause themselves to be born. It takes someone else doing this. And so he begins by pointing to the desperate situation. It's interesting to me, we often see this in Paul. He begins by thinking about the people he's writing to. And he says, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the prince of this age in all of your disobedience. But he very quickly identifies with those he's writing to. And he says, like all of us, myself included, all of us who were once children of wrath, like all of humanity. And so there are three things that he's really emphasizing here. The first is simply the fact that religion, religious activity, morality, trying hard, learning more, all good things in themselves. The Bible's never against behaving, <laughs> seeking to be good, trying to learn, but it's simply saying that cannot make you right with God. That cannot answer the desperate nature of all of humanity's situation. You're dead. And because you are spiritually dead, though you are physically alive, you are nonetheless living a life of bondage, 
bondage to your own passions and desires. There was an article, perhaps some of you saw in this morning's uh, Washington Post, by Reza Aslan. Aslan, great last name. That's the name of the lion in C.S. Lewis's works. This is a, uh, a very interesting, I think, Muslim background writer. And I just noticed it because on Googling for news, my preferred method now, I confess, I've gone to the dark side. Uh, no more crinkle in the morning that I used to look forward to. But I saw a, a picture of, you know, a little sketch of Adam and Eve in the garden, and it said, go ahead and eat the fruit. And his article starts by saying, when I was a kid and I read this, I thought the message was, you know, don't disobey God the way that Adam and Eve did, because then you'll, you'll lose everything. You'll be thrown out of the garden. But he said, as I got older, I realized that what the problem was, and I think he's right in this, it was not the fruit, it was you will be like God. And they took it with a desire to be like God. But then he goes on to say, and he's now a pantheist, God is everything and in everything and what we see and what we are and us and the cosmos, that's, that's God. So he says, eat the apple because basically you are. I would contend for a slightly different interpretation of that. Uh, because one of his points is, after all, God said, in the day that you eat the fruit, you'll die. But they didn't. They did, according to the Bible's understanding. They died spiritually, cut off from the source of life. And so their bodies as well began to die. But we who are their children, Paul says, are born dead, spiritually dead. But because our bodies are alive, we're the living dead. Got our own show now. And we act in many ways because we're made in God's image and likeness with intelligence and we're relational and we have many good instincts toward good. We long for that for which we were made. Long and the shorter it is, he says, we cannot through religion get there. And this was Luther's situation. If you know his story, and I'm not going to take the time to try to relate much of it, but uh, if you've got the patience and you'd love a great black and white movie that was done by the greatest Luther scholars of the last century, um, Roland Bainton, Yaroslav Pelikan, all those great guys with the uh, Germanic types of names, um, watch the old Here I Stand. It's still available. Great movie. If you want something more recent, around 2003, uh, Joseph Fines of the Fines Brothers starred in a relatively good, uh, updated, simply entitled Luther. And you'll get there much of the background of what was going on. But if you know Luther's story at all, he was not one of the uneducated. I said last week that the problem for most medieval Christians in the West was that they didn't speak Latin, they didn't understand Latin, the service was in Latin, they, they didn't know what was going on. You, you could not have, so they were taught, an intimate relationship with God yourself. You had to go through the layers of the hierarchy, you had to go through the sacramental system, which was, in effect, a series of blocks keeping you back from knowing, from understanding, you were dependent, you were in bondage. And then because the doctrine of purgatory had become accepted throughout the church, the idea was that Christ's sacrifice was enough 
to get you in if you were baptized and had, as they believed, original sin washed away. But then you had to do lots of things in order to avoid purgatory. And for most people, you'd sin so much that you weren't ready for heaven. You had to go to purgatory to have those sins burned away. Now, what does that say of grace? So Luther, in torment, would starve himself, beat himself. He was not illiterate. He was a scholar. He'd been a lawyer. He read the Latin. He knew the service. He went to the mass, and he starved himself and beat himself. He would go to confession, and the other guys would go to confession, and they'd say, you know, I stole Brother Dominic's potatoes, and, you know, when he wasn't looking, oh, well, you know, ten Hail Marys, say, say the Our Father, and well, wash the refectory floor. Luther'd go in, and they'd think, oh, no, I've got Luther again. Luther'd go in, and he'd say, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And so the greatest sin, that most worthy of hell, is not to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. I don't love the Lord. In fact, I hate him. I hate him for making this, like this making me as I am. I hate him for all of this. I live in terror and fear, and I cry out to him, there's nothing that I can do to be made right. And they didn't know what to do with him. They sent him on pilgrimages to Rome. They told him, do this, do that. Finally, a wise father confessor said to him, go teach the Bible. <laughs> Study the Bible, teach it, and teaching Romans. When he came to that quote from Habakkuk, where Paul wrote, the just shall live by faith. He said the heavens opened. And suddenly he realized what the Bible was teaching that it's not by works, it is by grace. Because we are dead apart from grace, we are in bondage to our own passions and desires apart from grace, however much we may fake that, and our lives are filled with futility. He says, you're just like all of us, children of wrath. But God, but God, why? God, when I finally get my act together, God, when I finally understand what the preacher's been saying, God, when I do this or do it, no. But God, through his great mercy, while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, because of his great love, made us alive in Christ. That's the gospel. We look at humanity, and if you're like me, there are times when you think like Luther did. Luther said, if I were God, I'd kick this world to pieces. And you look at this world sometime, the terror, hunger, you just want to kick it. God looks in love, but God, because of his rich mercy loved us. Do you have any idea how much God loves you, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you're struggling with? God doesn't look at you the way that religion would teach you. God looks and sees us as he intended us to be.
as he wants to make us. And God so loved the world that he gave his son. How can this be? You must be born again. The religious leader, Nicodemus, asks, how can this be? How can a man enter back into his mother, be born again? Jesus says, no, no, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And it's like the wind blowing. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. It's God's work. God, who is not against you, but for you. God who desires your salvation. God who has redeemed you at such great cost. That's the gospel. The gospel of God's grace. The gospel of his mercy and of his love. And then Paul simply in the final verses answers those three devastating consequences of being alienated from God by nature. We were born dead, but he says in verse 5, he made you alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. I love that picture that I've used with you before. I was doing a conference with Paige Benton Brown, and she gave a, a beautiful illustration. She said, too often we think, we know that our hearts are not right, and so we think they need some work. We think maybe God needs to do a coronary bypass or put in some stints, but we know we need work. She said, no, you need a heart transplant. God gives you a new heart. But just as when a person physically has a transplant, the flesh wants to reject the new. And so if it's a physical heart, you need massive antisuppressive drugs so that you won't reject it. And she said, the sacraments that God has given us, the means of grace, are those antisuppressives through which he just pours his grace and his love and his new life into us so that that new heart he's given us will take and become the center of our lives. We were dead. We're now alive. We were in bondage to futility. And now we've been set free, seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are in Christ Jesus. The old Puritans used to look at at Romans chapter 5, where we're told you're either in Adam, the old humanity, or you're in Christ, the new humanity, the second Adam. And they would say, before God, only two people stand, Adam and Christ, and everyone else is hanging from the belts of one or the other. Well, it's close, but it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something so much more precious. You and I, if we are in Christ, are not hanging from his belt. We're the members of his body. And if he has ascended and is seated at the Father's right hand, obviously language that we understand being used of things beyond our comprehension. But we are in some way even now, even now, seated with Christ in the heavens even in our brokenness, even in times when we fail, even in times when our hearts are cold. If we are in Christ, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies where he is. Nothing can take us from him. Was the um, great New Testament scholar of the last 
century, Oscar Kuhlmann, who had seen his nation and all of Europe devastated by World War II, who used of this a beautiful picture. He said, the Axis powers, the German powers, knew that the war was over after D-Day. And now they were simply fighting for position, hoping for the best end that they could get. He said many more battles would be fought, more lives lost, more people fighting and in danger, but, but the war had been won. And he said that's what happened at Calvary. The war was won. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It's done. It's finished. But the battles are still to be fought. We are still contending for the kingdom. And it's still at times a place of danger and struggle and fear where we want to turn and run, and sometimes we do. But, but the victory has been won. And now our lives, you see, are not futile. We're not like all mankind, children of wrath. We are children of the king. And the final verse, Paul answers the question that was raised during the Reformation and continues to be raised against the, the Protestant solas. And it's just this. Doesn't the doctrine of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone lead people to lawlessness and disobedience? If we're not saved, if we don't contribute to our own salvation, then doesn't that just leave us saying, I like to sin, God likes to forgive, this is great stuff? No. Paul was accused of that, and he said twice in Romans, God forbid, that's not what I'm saying. But what Paul says to the Ephesians is this, and with this I finish. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God has saved us not just so we get to go to heaven when we die. God has saved us for a new life. He's entrusted the life of Christ to us, the spirit of Christ to us. We are members of the body of Christ. And we are now called by grace to live before the world in such a way that those who know us will have reason to believe that just maybe the gospel is true. You were dead. You've been made alive so that you might live for the praise of his glory and for the good of those he's entrusted to you.